every working person in this country is going through something. Everyone is trying to figure out how to survive, and many are failing. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Making Contact, The Laura Flanders Show, Counterspin, and This Is Hell. other ways to measure discontent beyond polls and election results. We saw the first wave of discontent with Obama's rule with the emergence of the Occupy movement in 2011 and then the eruption of Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2014. Both were products of the widening gap of inequality in the United States. That inequality was at the heart of the Occupy movement and its popularization of class inequality in the U.S. through the slogan of the 99% versus the 1%. But this inequality was also important in how we understand the emergence of Black Lives Matter. Black Americans, of course, took the brunt of the economic crisis in 2007 and 2008. It was in part how we understand the deep wells of support that existed for Obama and his campaign's ability to tap into the anger with the federal government's abject disregard for what was happening in black communities. We cannot understand, for example, the social catastrophe happening across black Chicago where there will be 700 homicides in that city, the vast majority of which affect young black people. You cannot understand that social catastrophe without understanding the persisting effects of the economic crisis that never really ended in many black communities. Chicago has the third highest black unemployment rate of any major city in this country. It has the third highest poverty rate of a large city in the United States. Its black middle class is being gutted because of municipal, state, federal budget cuts that have wiped out public sector jobs in postal work, teaching, and other positions that have historically been the bedrock of black economic stability. The breakdown of this civic infrastructure in combination with the existing crisis of mass incarceration and what Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow, the persistence of unemployment and underemployment, and of under-resourced public services and institutions has created the pretext for deepening police presence in black communities, and as a result, exacerbating all of the conditions that justify the presence of the police in the first place. As living conditions in black communities have become harder, the police have been given license to respond with arrests and brutality. And while the emergence of Black Lives Matter has exposed the extent to which violent policing is institutionalized in this country, it nevertheless continues. The police are on pace to kill 1,200 people this year, more than last year when newspapers first begin to count. And substantively, more than the 928 a year the FBI had been suggesting as an average two years earlier. 
If you want to understand why the black vote was depressed compared to 2008 and 2012, it can be found in the inability of the American government to aggressively intervene and prevent the murder of black citizens by the state. Whether it's with the policing of black communities or the water crisis in Flint, the expectation that black Americans would be a firewall for Clinton was as offensive as it was reflective of a kind of liberal contempt for the daily struggles of working class and poor people. There is just the expectation that no matter what is happening in your life and how terrible things might be, and no matter how unresponsive the Democratic Party may be, you still have to vote for them. And then the bitterness directed at people when they don't respond in such a way is even more contemptuous. This is true when liberals blame depressed black voter turnout for the election results, but it is also the case when they blame working class whites from, quote, voting against their interests, as if somehow voting for the neoliberal yet civil politics of the Democratic Party are in the interest of the working class. And as an aside... Working class interests are never on the ballot in bourgeois elections. But when it comes to the fate of ordinary white people, who despite the media and academic fascination with for the moment, these are people who are also regularly ignored. We have heard all sorts of dime store psychology about the so-called white working class, most of it thinly veiled elitism. White workers feel entitled, they are only interested in themselves, they are privileged, they are racist scum, they are just bad. In total, it reflects the political establishment's contempt for the struggles of regular people. If you only read these reports or assessments, you would think there was no inequality experienced by white working class people, or that ordinary white people were just living the high life. But when we consider the experiences of white working class people within the context of the attacks on working class standards in general, we get a different picture. And what would happen if we told the story of black Chicago and other black communities across this country as part of the same story of what is happening to ordinary white people? For example, there is the continuing crisis of opioid or narcotic addiction in this country. While people are quick to point out how differently it is received compared to the war on drugs directed at black communities in the 1980s and 90s, which is undoubtedly true, what does this crisis at this particular moment in time tell us about the conditions of working class life and working class people? There are two million people addicted to opioids in the U.S. Half of those people are addicted to heroin. Earlier this year, it was reported that there had been a decline in the life expectancy for white women and a plateauing of life expectancy for white men. In the U.S. peer countries, life expectancy is growing. Why is life expectancy for white women in decline in this country? drug overdose, suicide, and alcohol abuse. So if we told the stories of the destruction of working-class black life alongside the stories of the destruction of working-class white life, 
It could allow us to see that the anxieties, stresses, confusions, and frustrations about life in the world today are not owned by one group, but are shared by many. It would not tell us that everyone suffers the same oppression or exploitation, but it would allow us to see that even if we don't experience a particular kind of oppression, every working person in this country is going through something. Everyone is trying to figure out how to survive, and many are failing. If we put these stories together, we would gain more insight into how the white working class and poor have as much stake in the fight for a different kind of society as anyone else. We wouldn't so casually dismiss their suffering as privilege because they do not suffer as much as black and brown people in this country. The privileges of white skin run very thin in a country where 19 million white people languish in poverty. Apparently, the wages of whiteness are not so great to stop millions of ordinary white people from literally drinking and drugging themselves to death to escape the despair of living in this so-called greatest country on earth. If we put these separate stories together into a single story, we could make better sense of why socialism is rising in popularity, why people have taken to the streets over the last five years to protest the growing racial and economic inequality in this country. 51% of 18 to 29-year-olds say they are against capitalism, even if they are not fully convinced of what should replace it. 47% agreed that basic necessities, such as food and shelter, are, quote, a right that the government should provide to those unable to afford them. In the 1970s, 61% of Americans fell into that vague but stable category of middle class. Today, that number has fallen to 50%. It is driven by the growing wealth inequality that exists here. In general, the richest 20% of households in the U.S. own 84% of the wealth in this country, while the bottom 40% own less than 1%. In other words, there are 400 billionaires in this country. They are the reason why there are 47 million poor people. You cannot have untold obscene wealth unless you have untold obscene poverty. That is the law of the market. And how does such a tiny percent of the population unjustly hold on to their wealth, even when millions agree that it should be redistributed? Racism, immigrant bashing, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, nationalism. They get us to fight each other while they hoard their wealth. Our stories are not all the same. We do not all have the same experiences but our hardships often emanate from the same source, a market-based economy that privileges the wealthy over the welfare and lives of the people who create that wealth. And they keep our stories separate from each other so that we never understand the entire story, only our particular part of it. But even with great effort to keep our side divided and confused, 
Millions of people are coming to grips with the harsh reality of an economic system that guarantees them nothing but a future of hardship and an inability to ever get ahead. But the knowledge alone of the existence of racism, inequality, poverty, and injustice does not necessarily equip our side with the political tools needed to fight the battles of today or to fight for a socialist future. We need struggle. We also need politics because we must contend with a political establishment that wants to lower our expectations to believe that the existing society is the best that we can expect from humanity. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, but they're changing the way people buy their razors because no longer must you go to the store only to choose between a cheap disposable razor that gives you a cheap shave and spending a fortune on those gimmicky razors with silly features no one needs. The combination of Dollar Shave Club's executive razor and their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter is just the kind of high-quality, smooth, yet affordable shave that I was looking for, and you too can make the smarter choice. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of Dr. Carver's shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only $5. In your first month's box, you get an awesome weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of their shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price, but not to worry, there are no hidden fees and no commitments. You can cancel anytime you like. And remember, you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. We keep hearing there's mistrust between police officers and communities of color as if the relationship just needs a little repairing. But the fact is, police don't suffer from a deficit of procedure. They suffer from an excess of power, says our next guest. And liberal procedural reforms are not going to change that. In fact, liberals, as much if not more than conservatives, have expanded our criminal code so as to produce today's mass incarceration or prison state. What do we need to do? Not tweak transform, says Naomi Murakawa, and we would do well to throw out our language about police brutality and profiling. The problem is way bigger. Naomi Murakawa is an associate professor of African American studies at Princeton and the author of The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America. Naomi, I'm thrilled to have you here in the studio. Thanks so much for coming in. Let's start with the basics. Mm -hmm. The first civil right refers to a Nixon term, but your story really begins before that, take your pick. You want to start with Nixon or, or where your story starts? Um, let's start with how liberals built prison America. <laughs> okay. So um, there is a really strong conventional wisdom about who built prison America. And that story is about Republicans and their racial tactics. So think Nixon's silent majority, Reagan's war on crack cocaine, Bush the elders, Willie Horton campaign. The story there is conservative law and order was for more, more, more punishment. But 
the criminal justice system that we have isn't just about more punishment. It's also about more procedural rights, more guidelines to fix sentencing disparity, more and better trained criminal justice professionals, more alternatives to incarceration. These are the trademarks of liberal law and order. And with these, liberals tried to build the bias out of the criminal justice system. But what they did was build a bigger, stronger criminal justice system with procedural rights giving a patina of legitimacy. Mm. So even as we tried to do kind of kindler, gentler policing, we just ended up with more policing. Yeah. But you talk about where this began in terms of our history, the 40s, the mm -hmm. 50s. Mm -hmm. Some of the people calling for these changes were people very concerned about civil rights. Yeah. And there is real concern about civil rights. And there is real need to reform the criminal justice system um, in the name of racial fairness. But liberals adopted a particular ideology to explain and justify their transformation. And that ideology is racial liberalism, which is a perspective that says the problem of race is an individual psychological problem of bias and prejudice. It's a mm. cognitive, emotional misfire, um, a rush of hatred or anger or, or fear that comes from some antiquated stereotype, right? And if that's your conception of racism, then that tells you to transform systems in certain ways. It tells you that bias in the criminal justice system actually seeps in through administrators who have an excess of discretionary power. So the battery of reforms are going to be, let's train people, let's try to get rid of their uh, implicit bias, um, let's constrain the way that judges can deploy the prejudice in their sentencing. So we have layer, 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 more procedure, more rules, all the while making the criminal justice system bigger. Simultaneously, racial liberalism keeps telling us to look in all the wrong places. Mm, it says, when we're looking for evidence of racism, we need to find it in the mind of the person accused of being a racist. As opposed to? As opposed to observing racial death the way it happens in reality. Mm. So I find it particularly absurd that at this moment, with the world's largest prison system on the planet and the history of the planet, that gets its size from incarcerating African Americans and Latinos, the question on the table seems to be, how do we get evidence of racism? And the answer is, apparently we need body cams as if we need more evidence of racism, right? We don't need this sort of fine-grained detail of what's happening mm -hmm. in each individual administrator's head. We need to embrace the perspective that the black bodies killed, that the black and brown bodies put in cages. That's proof of racism. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to correct. I want to get back to that question of the growth. Is the growth of the prison system and our carceral state, mm -hmm. the state that incarcerates people, an inevitable outgrowth of the way these liberal reforms happened? Or could it have happened a different way? So when the focus is on professionalizing police, modernizing police, and right now and through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, hiring more police, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we 
ask police to do and what are their tools. So maybe they can be trained to be more friendly, um, more sensitive to the community, more culturally competent, more polite. But we still have to ask, what's their job? Their job is enforce the criminal enforce criminal law use force as necessary and by the way we're a culture that only knows how to criminalize we have a variety of social problems massive inequality and misery mental illness drug addiction homelessness deep poverty and we address those with policing how is racial liberalism or liberal racism mm-hmm. different from the conservative sort it has a different tone and tenor but it's not really different. So we can think about, for example, racial profiling, right? Or what it is to have a profile of black criminality. And when we think about these terms, racial profiling, racial criminalization, the conflation of blackness criminality, there's a tendency to go to the sort of Willie Horton example of there are moments when, um, racist politicians exploit public sentiment and put forward these stereotypes, right? And that's certainly true. But we also have a standard refrain that we hear from a variety of left-leaning actors, and that refrain is, black people commit crime because they've been injured, because they're poor, because they face discrimination. Now, these may sound like opposites. It may sound like you have conservatives saying, let's be contemptuous about black people's bad choices. Mm -hmm. And you have liberals saying, let's have pity for black people's bad social conditions. Sounds a little different in tone, but the target is the same. The target is black people, right? They've already converged on the most important question, which is, who are we supposed to think of when we think of criminals? They Mm. give the same answer. Think about black people. And once the target is locked on black people, that's it. Mm. So let's talk about some of the people that are out there right now um, running for office, say, on the Democratic side. What really concerns me about political elites with whatever alleged good intentions right now is that they are taking what is the truly transformative potential of Black Lives Matter and producing positions of advocacy that are about minor technocratic reforms Mm -hmm. that are in many ways likely to make policing stronger. Hillary Clinton is now amongst a chorus of people who are advocating decarceration or alternatives to incarceration. But here again is where um, the history of what liberals have done can really warn us against adding these appendages to the criminal justice system. So what we know is that everything that's introduced as an alternative to incarceration usually becomes a supplement to incarceration. Mm -hmm. Parole was supposed to help cut sentences shorter. Parole officers were supposed to be helpful, almost like social workers. What is it we know now? We know that people being reincarcerated are entering through the parole system where they miss a meeting with a parole officer 
or they get a job in the county they're not supposed to be in, and then they're reincarcerated. We have to be very wary about extending the arms of the criminal justice system. And that's a great example, because presumably sentencing is done nowadays with the idea that there will be parole. Mm -hmm. And then when there isn't, what are you left with? Just the longer sentence. Yeah. Your book is extraordinary. The last, I, I don't know, 100 pages seem to be lists of capital crimes, crimes for which you can have the death penalty, mandatory minimum sentences. Mm -hmm. And you make the point that this is all a very speedy speed up, very speedy expansion for mm -hmm. the first 200 years of our history, it wasn't this way. Yeah, that's right. So in 1787, there were three federal crimes. Now there are more than 5,000. There are hundreds and hundreds more at state and local levels, yeah. right? Criminalization, and in particular racial criminalization, is our mode of governance, mm. right? And this is what we have to tackle frontally rather than looking at these sort of administrative tinkerings with the criminal justice system. So I want you to talk to me about how we unravel this. The mm -hmm. only little moment of cheer I get from your analysis is, well, if it escalated so fast, maybe it could de-escalate in our lifetime. Yes. Do you think it's possible? And if so, how? I think that we need to focus on dismantling, attending to the questions of the scale, scope, and racial concentration of the criminal justice system. That means actually turning away from most of the reforms on the table right now, which are about adding some administrative layers to how we're going to check police, adding more training for police. What we need is actually massive decriminalization. So we need to slash incarceration rates without creating prison-like alternatives like house arrest, probation, ankle monitors. We also have to slash the arrest rate without coming up with arrest-like alternatives like summonses and fees and fines. Right? We need to turn away from the criminal justice system entirely and work towards decriminalization. When we think about racial death and the way we use the criminal justice system to hold the class and color line, we should not, in our reform, think about the worst or the most extreme cases. Mm -hmm. So the reforms for policing now actually shouldn't be organized around these incidents of policing that allegedly has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. We actually need to look at the cases where policing goes right, right? So let's just look at the modal case, the typical case. The bread and butter of what police do is that they arrest and give summonses for misdemeanor offenses. The typical case in a criminal court is a misdemeanor case. So when, and here we're talking about things like um, being caught driving with a suspended license, um, perhaps public drunkenness, vandalism, um, if you're young, if you're um, black and young, or black transgender and gender nonconforming, pickups for curfew violation, um, r for running away, for right? This is what we're looking at when we talk mm -hmm. about the problems of criminals that we're dealing with. We actually need to just turn away from that entire apparatus, mm -hmm. stop trying to perfect it, and begin the task of massive decriminalization. Are there models out there that you're excited about where people are doing the kind of rollback, unpicking the carceral state in ways that you think could be replicable? So I think that it is certainly a step in the right direction 
uh, when organizers from Black Lives Matter call for an end to broken windows policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I hear that is let's change the routine, everyday bread and butter way that policing happens. Let's not just look at the so-called extreme cases. That's tremendously important work. We need to, in undoing broken windows policing, undo it not just as policing tactic or strategy or attitude, but we actually need to decriminalize all the parts of the criminal code that empower police to make those decisions. When Newt Gingrich comes out for criminal justice reform, you are right to look under the hood to question just how deep this popular reform is intended to go. Any improvements that help real people are to be wished for. But policing and prisons are systems with deep and far-reaching roots in U.S. life. We ought to have questions about reform that comes without an honest reckoning with the fact that some of what we call problems in the criminal justice system are not so much bugs as features. Our next guest engages these questions in an essay called Paying for Punishment, the New Debtor's Prison, which appears in the July-August issue of Boston Review. Donna Murch is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University, author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, and of the forthcoming Asada Taught Me, State Violence and Mass Incarceration from the Black Panther's to the Movement for Black Lives. She joins us now by phone from Inwood. Welcome to Counterspin, Donna Murch. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, this piece talks about ways that the state at various levels extracts money from criminalized people. What does that look like? What happens? Well, I started researching this piece after being solicited to write a piece on the criminalization of debt. And what I found out is that it's really, the two are related to each other, but this process of indebting people that have been criminalized by the state is really, I think, our most pressing problem and really a modern form of debtor's prison. Uh, Some people call it debtor's prison 2.0. And I think what really called attention to this was Ferguson. So the protests in Ferguson are known for highlighting the militarization of police, and that was the most obvious. But through a combination of the street protest and also organizing groups like Arch City Defenders, people discovered that Ferguson had this whole system of profiteering off of its black population. So the black population is about 66%, I think it's about two-thirds, but a significant portion between 20 and 25% of municipal revenue came from the whole system of ticketing and criminalization that targeted the black population overwhelmingly. And I use an example of this from Ferguson about how Michael Brown is shot in the context of Darren Wilson stopping him as he's crossing the street in this you know, it's really not even a street, it's a lane inside the housing development where he lived. But the offense for which he was being accosted for was walking in the street, which is illegal in Ferguson. And 95% of people that are given that citation are African-American. So 
when Ferguson happened, I think it shined a light on something that's a long-term problem, which is these ways that the state, especially municipalities and states, uh, it doesn't happen in the federal system, use the entire criminal justice system to raise revenue. And I think that's really important because often when we think of incarceration, particularly in this moment, since 2008, the sheer cost of it has always been seen as a potential unifying force between bipartisan and left and right consensus. But the truth is that while people usually think about private prisons as the main way that incarceration makes money, if they're actually much more direct, and I would say, you know, people are still gathering information about this nationally, but whole systems, not only of charging people for criminal justice debt, legal financial obligations, where if you are arrested, immediately you begin to incur criminal justice debt. So people are charged for every step along the way of incarceration, being put in a jail, being charged jail fees. If you receive a public defender, and 80% of people who are prosecuted are considered indigent. So the majority, if they in order to receive legal representation, receive public defenders. If you choose not to go to jail and instead the court um, allows you a system of electronic monitoring, many municipalities have a system called offender-funded justice in which you have to pay for the cost of wearing an electronic bracelet. And that in particular, I think, represents the future for the criminal justice system. So it's all these ways that they extract money from the most vulnerable populations, and they are also incentivized to arrest people because it raises money. Well, isn't there a law against it? It sounds naive, but I mean, I thought there was some something in the law that acknowledged that a person who can't pay can't pay. One of the things that set the United States apart from Europe was that relatively early on in the 19th century, it outlaws debtors' prison. But what's happened, I think, in the last 40 years with the system of mass incarceration is that it's really just grown. You know, it's like a monster that keeps growing in in many different ways. And I think much of this, there haven't been yet the constitutional challenges to this, but it's grown up through individual municipal court practices and then through ways that essentially private debt collectors have gained through the system. So I think ultimately you have activists that are fighting this. The ACLU has played an important role in this, people challenging the practices of municipal courts. But I think that this larger campaign of punishment In many ways, you know, if you can incarcerate people for long periods of time for minor offenses, incarcerating them for a debt becomes much less controversial. So I think these practices ultimately will be rendered unconstitutional, but I think that they've been able to proliferate because of you know, kind of the consensus around punishment in the U.S. Yeah, I was on a talk show once and a caller was defending the practice of referring to people as illegals. And he had hit on a technique that he liked. He said, that person who overstayed his visa, did he break the law or not? Did he break the law or not? You know, and he just kept repeating that. And there's an insistence that what's being objected to is not the person's race or their status, but simply their placement on the wrong side of the law, um, which implicitly applies equally to everyone. You know, homeless people are arrested for public urination, not for homelessness. You know, it sort of seems like the conversation can't move forward unless it's taken to a different level where we talk about how laws are made and how laws are enforced, because otherwise this idea that someone has broken the law is kind of a thought stopper. 
Yeah, I think that that's absolutely crucial. In many states, if you've been convicted of a felony, you lose the right to vote for the period you're serving in prison, and in some states permanently, in other states for a designated period of time. Something that people know much less about is that in many states, if you have criminal justice debt of the kind that I've been talking about, which almost all people who are incarcerated incur this, you know, it was a real surprise to me because I'm someone who writes about the war on drugs and mass incarceration, but I wasn't even aware of the system of extraction until I started researching it for this article, that 41 states charge people for the cost of imprisonment and 44 states charge people for the cost of probation. So what that means is that nearly everyone who's being arrested or incarcerated is incurring criminal justice debt. And in many states, you can be stripped of your right to vote until you pay off all of your criminal justice debt. So I talk about that essentially as a modern-day poll tax. Well, the self-perpetuating cycle that, that you write about of debt and criminalization and incarceration doesn't just ruin individual lives. It also distorts our understanding of crime and of poverty and of their relationship. It's hard to overstate, really, how much this this connection, this confluence of factors has shaped the present landscape. And that's one of the things that you talk about, you know, the effect cumulatively on the racial wealth gap, for instance. Yeah, I think that that's really one of the central points. In the piece, I have kind of a large historical arc. I'm a historian. And so I go back and I talk about the system of debt peonage and convict leasing that followed the Civil War because in many ways it's a precedent for what we're seeing today. And when you look at incarceration through the prison of resource extraction, it's overwhelmingly directed at African Americans. So again, I think the case of Ferguson became this illustrative case. And it's illustrative largely to people mobilized and fought back. That's really important. We know about this story because of social protest. Absolutely. Well, Activists know that you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I sort of seem to be making fun of this kind of left-right convergence on criminal justice reform, but we have to use the energy of the current moment to push for better. I wonder, what do you see as the hopeful glimmers uh, at the moment, and what is the role for media? I start out my article by talking about left-right consensus, And I'm a little bit critical of it, not because I don't think the coalitions are important, but because I'm really, in a way, trying to examine the motives Mm -hmm. of some of the more conservative elements that are weighing in on incarceration and sentencing reform. For example, expanding probation through electronic monitoring has been a way to talk about decarceration. But the problem with it is that it deeply indebts people and, as we've been talking about today, provides this incentive for greater criminalization. Especially this year with the election campaign, there's a lot of discussion of neoliberalism, you know, which is um, the idea of what happens when market practices are applied to different kinds of public goods. And this is a very concrete way that neoliberalism intersects with mass incarceration. So it's not just about the state rolling back social welfare and public goods. It's about the state allowing the upward redistribution of wealth from America's most vulnerable people who are overwhelmingly black and brown. Looking at the recent policy platform that came out for the Movement for Black Lives, I think it's very exciting to see the convergence of people fighting for economic redistribution and against state violence. It's outrageous that there's no place we can feel safe in this nation. Not in our cars, not at the park, not in subway stations, not at church, the pool, the store, not asking for help, not walking down the street. So we 
overcome because I had a dream. Dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support Mama's Bailout Day this Mother's Day. For those of you not living the day-to-day oppression of black people in America, it's possible you didn't even notice right away that the movement for black lives has almost entirely dropped from the mainstream media headlines since November. There is no question that this is a direct causality of the election of Donald Trump. Maybe things will change as Jeff Sessions begins flexing his attorney general powers, but it's important to remember that nothing has changed for black people in America since November. Unarmed black people of all ages and walks of life are still dying at the hands of police, and the police are still getting away with it. So if you have found yourself disengaged from the movement, your first action is to jump back in. Visit the websites and social media pages of organizations like the Advancement Project, Alliance for Educational Justice, Color of Change, Dream Defenders, Law for Black Lives, and of course, the Movement for Black Lives. Your next action is to get involved this week with Mama's Bailout Day, leading up to and happening on Mother's Day this Sunday, May 14th. The day is organized by National Bailout, a partnership with Color of Change and the Movement for Black Lives, with the goal of reunited families, resisting mass incarceration, and ending the cash bail system once and for all. The idea is simple. Local and national organizations participating in National Mama's Bailout Day are raising money to pay the bail of as many incarcerated mothers as possible, in all of their varieties— queer, trans, young, elder, and immigrant, and give them an opportunity to spend Mother's Day with their families. Additionally, the organizations plan to build community through gatherings that highlight the impact of inhumane and destructive bail practices on our communities, particularly communities of color. Why the focus on mothers? Women held in local jails represent the fastest-growing group of incarcerated people in the United States. Since 1970, the number of women in U.S. jails has increased by 14 times. Nearly 80% of the women in jails are mothers, and nearly half are in local jails for crimes they haven't been convicted of. According to National Bailout, we spend $9 billion on pre-trial incarceration in this country, and the results are devastating. Even a few days in jail can catastrophically impact a woman family and community by putting her job, housing, and even the custody of her children at risk. But if she can't pay bail, she has no way out. The idea of paying bail to release these women comes from the tradition of enslaved black people who used their collective resources to purchase each other's freedom before slavery was abolished. The National Bailout website states, quote, until we abolish bail and mass incarceration, we're gonna free ourselves, unquote. The more money National Bailout can raise, the more women can be brought home for Mother's Day and re-engage with their communities. Visit nomoremoneybail.org to donate and find the cities and organizations taking part in the action. You can also follow the movement on Twitter at National Bailout and engage with the hashtags EndMoneyBail and FreeBlackMamas. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if resisting the devastating impacts of mass incarceration and bail practices on people of color is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Mama's Bailout Day this Mother's Day via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all 
and some serious stuff is going down. Civil war, intolerance, AIDS, obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? In your article, you write that liberalism and party politics have failed black America. How has liberalism, let's just focus on liberalism, how has liberalism failed black America? I think um, in the most recent election, it's really clear that the electoral strategy for the Democratic Party has simply been not being as bad as Republicans. And in that way, they can continue to count on the black vote, but they don't have to actually deliver anything for black people. And... We, we saw overwhelmingly that black people voted for Hillary Clinton. And yet in this new uh, moment of resistance, elector, of, of partisan resistance to Donald Trump and to the Republican Party, he, Democrats haven't really been doing anything to, you know, quote unquote, return the favor to uh, their incredibly loyal constituent base in the black community. William, why do you think uh, that uh, the Democratic Party isn't doing? Why do you think that liberalism uh, it has failed the Democrat or has failed black America because as Zoe was just saying, uh, it looks like they've been uh, taking black America for granted. So why do you think that liberalism has failed black America? Um, the reason liberalism has failed black America is because uh, when you really look at the, the party politics of uh, the Democratic Party, what they are <clears throat> are doing is they they take people who are organizable folks, people who have passion, people who have drive, um, who have a desire to make uh, change in this country. A lot of their constituents are good people, obviously, who do want to uh, do the right thing and do have uh, good values. And they take those folks and they kind of um, funnel them into this vortex uh, where where they absorb these uh, organizable people into things like the nonprofit industrial complex and with NGOs and, you know, unions and burgeoning movements that are happening. They take these folks and they co-opt from all of those places that I just listed. They co-opt people from these places and they put them into this, this kind of hamster wheel where nothing is actually being accomplished. It just, it just all ends up being, uh, symbolic when so many people in the Democratic Party are tied to the same corporations, tied to the same really, really violent structures uh, that uh, disenfranchise folks and, and oppress people. It's, they're just they're funneling people into the to the same um, into the same uh, structures that they purport to you know be against. So, Zoe, do you think that it is that there is energy that is being distracted into the into the party that there's an attempt by the party to empower black Americans? But at the same time, because the system has so many shortcomings, it just eventually leads to kind of a sense of futility or even disenfranchisement, even despite the fact that there is an attempt at empowerment. I think that, you know, we are. In the way that the Democratic Party praises the efforts of John Lewis, for example, right, and right. and these old school pioneers of the civil rights movement, I think in that praise of the civil rights movement is implicit or implicit to that praise is the fact that like the most important gains for black America are are through 
uh, legislative reforms are through working with the system through this idea of of reconciliation of 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 cooperation of reaching across party lines and accomplishing something together but the problem with legislative gains being made within an, uh, a a political system that doesn't change fundamentally is like who are the arbiters of 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 interpreting of interpreting the legislation in the favor of the black community who are going to be the people that are giving black people the rights and who are interpreting these laws equitably so when you have partisan turnovers of judgeships and partisan turnovers of legislators we see how quickly the gains that are made through legislative reform can be rolled back. We saw parts of the Voting Rights Act being gutted. We're looking at all of this gerrymandering and redistricting that are that are um, that are changing the outcome of elections. And so, and yet, because of this really intense fear of of black radical organizing, of of kind of black revolutionary activity, of these massive cataclysmic transformative changes, there is this really anti-black move, as William said, to co-opt this energy into something that is containable, into something that is organizable. Um, and they weaponize, I think, the civil rights movement in a lot of the language around peace and justice um, to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to get back to that uh, in just a second. But I, I, but Zoe, you said something earlier that I wanted to have uh, William comment on. Uh, why isn't being better than Republicans on race issues for the Democratic Party? Why isn't that low bar? Why isn't that enough anymore for black Americans to be supporting the Republic or the Democratic Party? Why isn't just being better than Republicans enough? Because the Republican, um, I, I don't think it's hyperbole when, when, when we start uh, talking about uh, neo-fascist movements uh, that stem from the Republican Party. The GOP is, um, is so bad that being better than them and, you know, being just a little bit, tiny little bit to the left of them or, um, you know, uh, saying things that are largely symbolic about uh, being moralistic and, and being better people and having better um, morals and things than the Republicans. It, it just, it's, it's not good enough. Um, we need an actual left in this country. Um, there is no real functioning left opposition in this country. Um, and the Democratic Party is like always essentially um, compromising. That is, that is, their definition of um, being the opposition right now as it stands is compromising and saying, okay, well, we're willing to work with you. And that is not how opposition works. So if, if we're, if we're going to actually, actually accomplish anything, there needs to be a, a real left. There needs to be a actual left in this country. And that is extremely important because if we're following the Democrats, what we're going to end up doing every single time is going along with the coat, the coattail of whatever the Republicans are doing and say, well, you know, you're, you want to do this. Well, just let us have this. That's not, that's not a movement. That's not resistance. That is just complete compromise. And that's, that's just completely pointless and a waste of people's energy because we're always going to lose that way. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, the one thing that the Democrats do well is compromise, and that's a very unfortunate <laughs> thing. Zoe, uh, why, you know, uh, following up on William, uh, why do you think in the U.S., why isn't there a left? Are we still suffering from the Red Scare of the 1950s? Are we still, uh, I mean, what what is the reason why there seems to be no real, you know, especially from the Democratic Party, the opposition party, supposedly, uh, any real appetite for left-leaning policies? Um, I think the problem with the Democratic Party and the problem, I guess, in in understanding why there's not really a difference in a lot of ways between the Democrats and the Republicans is that white supremacy is bipartisan, right? So simply because you are slightly less bad than the Republican Party doesn't mean that you actually have any desire for the actualization of black liberation. It doesn't mean that you actually have any desire to see a power structure toppled and overturned. And and I, the reason for there not being a left, I guess, you know, when it comes at least to black organizing, everybody got killed. Um, the government did a really good job of of making people informants, of turning people against one another and then straight up assassinating so much of the leadership. And and with the assassinations of the leadership and the rise of these these incredibly expansive surveillance states and the expansion of 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 the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration i think at least from from maybe from a black leftist a young black leftist point of view there's something incredibly scary about speaking truth to power and as maybe from white leftists there's you know an uncomfortable habit that they have of walking into spaces of color and telling black people how to understand class and how to understand um structures and there's a a, a fragmenting because of white leftist's own investment in white supremacy that is alienating to other people. And and there's just a real difficulty in in left sectarianism for us to kind of realize that, okay, so maybe we have differential understandings of how a revolutionary state is formed, um, but ultimately we we share an enemy. So how do we funnel our commonalities into a space where it can be, mo- our energies can be mobilized, mobilized and we can act towards the same thing? They're, yeah. Uh, William, uh, Zoe was talking about the uh, threat of violence and the violence that has been committed against uh, black rights uh, leadership in the past. And earlier she was talking about the inability for our electoral system to be a way towards reform, uh, permanent reform, uh, the kinds of permanent reform that we need. How much do you think voters realize the fragility of reform that once uh, a group gets rights that it is a constant fight for those rights into the future that those rights are far from being set in stone that they can be just torn up and thrown away overnight um i'm not i can't really say how much i feel like people realize that i think it varies um depending on where you are um i'm actually talking to you um from birmingham alabama right now And I grew up in, in Shelby County where, uh, you know, the, uh, Voting Rights Act was infamously, uh, targeted. The, that situation, um, in 2013, uh, uh, Shelby County versus Holder, I think that it, it was a prime example of the fact that all of the gains that we make, um, with this current system, all of the gains that we make can easily be taken away. And when you have uh, a party like the Democratic Party, again, who is compromising constantly, it just it 
it is really a dead end. Um, there has to be um, some sort of independent political power that needs to be organized, and it has to it has to move away from these structures that have anti-black violence embedded in them. Mm-hmm. They have really, really, really terrible um, histories uh, relating to genocide and, ensla- and enslavement. The Electoral College um, obviously has a, a deep history entrenched within it, um, embedded in it of of um, the the fact that it was. Cr- it was really like you know structured around uh, around enslavement and the three the three fifths compromise. So when you tell black people like, hey, just get out and vote Democrat, um, it completely undermines the fact that our our death and our demise and uh, the brutality that's been leveled against us for centuries is is a part of the of the very things that you are telling us are are going to bring us liberation. So it's, it's, it's kind of counterproductive um, to think that we're going to be freed uh, by the very things that have, uh, that have brutality against us uh, built into them. It's, it's kind of absurd really to think about. Zoe, uh, what happens when, and if the, People within the Democratic Party compromise with the bigotry and the hate that seems to be uh, increasingly normalized with the Trump administration. What happens if that kind of compromise, what will take place? We're fucked. (laughs) I mean, I mean, honestly, we are because I mean, I remember when the that, that GOP office in North Carolina burned down. And the the response of progressives was to raise thirteen thousand or however many dollars for that office. When in North Carolina, like trans rights are under really brutal attack, and all of that money could have been mobilized for a community that's being directly harmed by that state institution. And I think that this obsession, this 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 democratic obsession to like uh to to moral sanctimony and being able to claim that. We are better than them. We are more virtuous and more righteous than them. And that's why we try to compromise is really going to mean the demise of so many marginalized communities because that morality completely and always fails to translate into any kind of material su- support or, or safety or security or protection or benefit. And I think if, if all the Democratic Party has is filibustering, and all they have, cause, you know, they filibustered, but every single Trump nominee has been, has been confirmed. Right. You know, so, and, and now we have people in party that, in, in, in power that are going to be chipping away at not only, you know, rights based gains, but also communities and, and institutions for protection. And, and if the Democrats don't realize that just being nominally better than Republicans doesn't actually mean anything, um, I, I'm really worried about what's going to happen in the coming four years.
We just heard clips today starting with Making Contact, presenting a speech on how we're all suffering from racism and capitalism. The Laura Flanders Show explained the role of liberals in building the prison America we're dealing with today. Counterspin spoke with Donna Murch about for-profit punishment and criminal justice debt. Our activism for today is in support of Mama's Bailout Day for this Mother's Day. And finally, we just heard This Is Hell break down some of the ways the Democratic Party is failing their most loyal constituency. You can find Find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's David from Michigan, a public school teacher. I'm actually calling in response to Annie from Alabama on the most recent episode. Heard her mention the fact that she was doing a debate on universal health care or single payer health care at a very conservative Christian college. And uh, she mentioned something about tuning into the more nationalistic tendencies that there are, like this is being an American uh, to support single payer. We should we should uh, help help our poor. We should take care of the poor, our own people. Right. Um, I wanted to mention something else because I'm sure that there are other listeners out there who are like me and Annie who grew up in the more evangelical Christian background. One of the talking points I use when talking about single payer health care to my conservative family and my Christian family and friends is I say, wouldn't it be the most pro-life thing to do is to make it more reasonable and better for people to have children, to survive, to be able to, to uh, pay for health care that will keep them alive. This is the same thing I use as an argument for people who say that uh, we shouldn't extend uh, family time for when uh, children are born and shouldn't uh, extend pay for when children are born. I argue that it's probably one of the more pro-life stances you could take. Having a single-payer health care of sorts, having a uh, extended leave time from your job is one of the more pro-life things you could do, especially in the, in the most common point I usually end up bringing up to this conservative family is that uh, having, as dark and grim as this example is, having an abortion is often cheaper than ever having a child. I know this after I just had my first child. We ended up, before insurance, having a $17,000 bill by the hospital. Now, thankfully, I have pretty good insurance, but it got me thinking, who would ever want to have a baby if they were not in a good financial situation? So that's how I tend to frame it. I don't know if there are other uh, evangelical-raised people who listen to this. I'm sure there are, but that's just a tip that I give. Thanks again, Jay, for all you do. Appreciate all the work and uh, the good bits you put on here. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in uh, regarding your latest science podcast. thought it was uh, very interesting listening to the uh, radioactive carbon versus the carbon and the pollution percentages and so forth. I'm kind of a science geek anyway, so that was right up my alley. But I also rewind a month and a half ago, I watched the movie Cowspiracy, which I've been trying to watch for a long time, finally got to do that. And I don't recall them ever talking about radioactive carbon and carbon. They were focusing more on cows and and animal agriculture. You know, not that our family has really eaten much beef in the last couple of years, but it makes me think that, you know, where, where's the truth between those two differences lie, between the differences between your podcast and Cowspiracy. And um, Cowspiracy made it seem like, you know, really the source of global warming was 
based around the carbon output from animal agriculture. And your podcast really talked about uh, fossil fuels, um, two very different points of view. And I'm wondering, maybe somebody else has better information out there comparing the two. And that'd be great to hear. Anyway, stay awesome. Hey, Jay, this is Catherine from Bloomington, Illinois. Been a long time listener. Anyway, um, I'm responding to Alan from Georgia regarding uh, whether or not people who are anti-choice want to punish women who receive or request abortions or not. And I I know he said he was pro-choice, but when one punishes the provider of abortion, whether it's uh, illegal, right now legal abortion, if you punish doctors who uh, provide that kind of service, then you're doing basically the same thing as punishing the women because, of course, uh, the women and their fetuses or uh, babies will probably, a certain percentage of them will die because if the physician is tasked with deciding when the woman's life is at risk versus the fetus and at all costs must preserve the fetus, not not necessarily concerned about the woman, then, um, because they're not going to be punished if the woman loses her life, of course, just the fetus. You know, you're going to have a lot of women that will die. You know, just like in Ireland, the woman who is the dentist who uh, developed sepsis because she had a premature rupture of membranes, there was no way the fetus would be saved. However, there was still a heartbeat, and because they waited and waited and waited, basically the woman died uh, because uh, bacteria traveled uh, along the uh, open, you know, communication between the vagina and the uterus, and um, and then into her bloodstream, and she died. And I am speaking not as an OBGYN, but I am a physician. I'm also a woman, and have had two kids that were both high-risk pregnancies. So I'm a little concerned that when, you know, balancing the scales between, okay, do we save this? fetus, uh, you know, or do I go to jail uh, or lose my medical license, you know, there's going to be more people that make the wrong choice. So that's my two cents. Longtime listener, love the show, wouldn't miss it. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Just a couple of responses to those voicemails we heard. Uh, First, Alan from Connecticut talking about CO2 emissions and fossil fuels versus industrial agriculture, as was talked about in the film Cowspiracy. My understanding, which may be vague, is that there's not actually a conflict between the two issues that Alan was bringing up. My understanding of industrial agriculture and the reason it is such a large emitter of greenhouse gas emissions is in part because they use a lot of fossil fuels. So it's a combination. Yes, there is the added uh, part about 
cows particularly, but, you know, animals consuming lots of, you know, grains, oftentimes uh, grains they're not really uh, designed to consume, and then they generate more than the normal amount of methane and burp that out. And so methane is, you know, a huge part of that. But in terms of CO2 emissions, a lot of that comes from, you know, regular industrial use of oils, and then also uh, fossil fuel-based fertilizers, and on and on. So uh, it, it's actually a combination of the of the two. That's why I say I don't think there's a conflict to say that a lot of our CO2 emissions that we can track based on their re- radioactivity, as was described in Science Versus, some of that goes through the agriculture industry. It's the same coal and oil being used. And when we say that agriculture, especially industrial agriculture, is a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions, we're not saying that that's separate from coal and oil. We're saying that they are big users of coal and oil, in addition to, as I said, the methane emissions from animals and you know and a few other factors. Secondly, Catherine from Bloomington talking about reproductive rights and how restricting rights or, or punishing uh, abortion providers actually does hurt women. Of course, I agree with everything she said. The only reason that that I I would comment on it at all is because I am a stickler for what I hope is a good reason on always being clear about the difference between intentional and incidental uh, uh, ramifications, especially of policy. So with with conservatives, and we're just going to continue talking about reproductive rights as, as the example, the best thing you can say, the, the, the rosiest picture you can paint, is that if we give them all of the benefit of, of the doubt, we can say that they incidentally and unintentionally and completely ignorant of their actions, ignorant of the, you know, the, the ramifications of their actions, will end up hurting women with their policies. And women will definitely die when abortion rights are restricted. And the conversation that that started this was about laws written specifically to punish abortion providers and written specifically to not punish women. That is, of course, a direct punishment. Catherine's point is very well taken that the indirect punishment is what we never bother talking about and what especially conservatives never bother to admit is the reality of their desire to restrict reproductive rights is that women will be indirectly hurt by that. It doesn't matter if you write the law with the intention of hurting them or not. The reality is that it will hurt them. And so it is our job to point that out, make sure that they are are doing it out of uh, disregard, at least, rather than ignorance. They can't be allowed to continue to be ignorant, if they ever were ignorant, about the ramifications of the policies they want to pass. And we need to bring the conversation to the point where we recognize that if you continue to wish to pass restrictive abortion policies, then you are doing it out of a disregard for the safety and health of women. So you can write as many clauses into your legislation as you like saying that this legislation cannot possibly be construed as intending to punish women. doesn't matter. It punishes women anyway, whether you mean it to or not. As always, keep those comments coming in. The number again, 
That is going to be it for today. One last time, I want to thank Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring today's episode. They are the smarter choice for your razor needs. You can get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of Dr. Carver's shave butter for only five bucks with free shipping by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash best. After that, Razors are just a few bucks a month. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every tuesday and friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a crying shame how we get so trained we can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're missing Stories and forget who it is before.